Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 28 in the book of Hebrews titled Exhortation to Endurance, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we take kind of a turn here in chapter 10, and the author is going to recall some of the trials and suffering that this group endured. And I know you've mentioned over and over again that this audience of this letter is, are Jews who, are, who have been undergoing persecution, and we get insight into that in this section. Um, can you give us some of the theology that we're going to see here, as well as the main exhortation? Sure. We've, we've given consistently that as the story. Um, that the letter to the Hebrews was written to Jewish professors of faith in Christ who were under pressure from their surrounding neighbors and friends and family and authorities to forsake Christ and turn back to Old Covenant Judaism. And so in these verses, uh, Hebrews 10, 32 to 39, we have the central exhortation of the whole book, really. Um, it's, a, it's a very strong exhortation, this book is. It's a warning epistle. And it really is consummated in this message. Do not throw away your confidence in Christ. Don't throw away your faith in Christ. Persevere. You have need of perseverance. You need to press on in the Christian life despite this this opposition. And the thing that will motivate you to press on is faith. So we're about to go into the faith chapter um, but and into the third section of the three-part outline, which is that Jesus, the superior mediator, brings a superior covenant resulting in a superior life. So we're at that node. We're going to transition from the theology of the new covenant. And all you would be throwing away if you threw away Christ and went back to old covenant Judaism, you'd throw, be throwing away a superior mediator who is the son of God. And he brought in the final, the new covenant by which we are saved. You'd be throwing all that away. Uh, but if you don't, if you persevere, you will be living a life of faith. And I think one of the central parts of this little section we're going to study here is the, that their earlier demeanor is exemplary, was exemplary. Yeah. And that is that they persevered in the face of suffering because they were convinced that they had a better and lasting possession. So that's powerful. Yeah, it is. Well, for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to read verses 32 through 39. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So, I want to go through some of these details, Andy. In verse 32, he tells them to recall the former days. And he says this, after you were enlightened. So does that refer to when they became Christians, do you think? Oh, I think so. I think he's talking to them as Christians. And I know earlier in chapter 6, just being enlightened is not enough. And so to some degree, the jury's out on what these people are going to do. 
So he uses that more general term rather than when you were transformed or when you were regenerated by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't use that kind of language. But look what, look what the outcome. They already, it seemed, were proving themselves not to be stony ground hearers. They were enduring uh, the persecution and they weren't falling away. But they needed to persevere, and that's what the author's getting at. Yeah, he's bringing them back to their early behavior, which was exemplary. It was courageous. And that's what he talks about. He says, remember how you used to be. It's a very powerful reminder here. Yeah. And he said they endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So... I'm, I know we don't know some of the exact details of this group, but can you give us an idea of the type of persecution that the early church and maybe specifically the early Jewish Christians would have experienced? So the early Jewish Christians, you really want to center around Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that, that part where where Christ uh, lived his life and where he was crucified. And we see the early earliest stages of persecution against the church were right there in that setting. Peter and John were persecuted by Jewish uh, officials. And we see it even in Jesus' lifetime, you know, very clearly in John chapter 9 with a man born blind. He was dragged in before the authorities and he had to give an account for his own healing. And he does it marvelously. He doesn't really have a lot to say. He just knows one thing I know. I was blind and now I can see. And if you're asking me to speculate, I think he's from God. You know, the one who did this. I mean, really, uh, who else could do something like this? He's a very simple man. He's about as subtle as a brick. But right in that account in John 9, it was clear that a decision had been made by the Jewish authorities that if anyone designated or, or announced that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. And that, I think, is the basis of some of the poverty of Jewish Christians that Paul was raising money for. Uh, in in the book of Romans, Romans 15, and then also 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's raising money from Gentiles. It says in Romans 15 that they owe it to them because they've received spiritual blessing. But why were these Jewish Christians so poor? I think they had been de-synagogued. They'd been kicked out. So they would not be able to earn money. But here, the persecution listed here in, in Hebrews 10.32 goes beyond that. They're being aggressively persecuted. Some of them are being arrested. Uh, some of them, you know, their possessions were being confiscated. So it's a pretty stern trial, but I think at the hands of Jewish authorities who were persecuting them. Yeah, I'm reminded of Jesus in John chapter 16. He warns his disciples. He says, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Mm. And an hour is coming for those who kill you to think that he's offering service to God. Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. And I think it, it doesn't make a lot of sense that this is coming from Gentile persecutors. That happened too, no doubt about it. But actually in the book of Acts, for the most part, the Gentiles, uh, Gentile leaders were indifferent, uh, just as long as they kept the peace and followed the rules. It was usually the zealous Jews that were stirring up the Gentiles against the leaders. You see this again and again in the book of Acts. And so here, uh, why would the Gentile persecutors, like a Gentile procurator or some kind of governor or whatever, some uh, local official, care whether they went back to Old Covenant Judaism? They wouldn't, he wouldn't care about that at all. Probably he didn't see a lot of difference between Old Covenant Judaism and New Covenant Christianity. It was all a Jewish religion to him. So who is it that would be appeased or satisfied if they would just renounce these ways and go back to Old Covenant Judaism? Seems like these Jewish pro uh, prosecutors. Uh, persecutors. And so these individuals were going through a severe trial. And and I think it's interesting, he, he says, like some in some cases you were actually persecuted yourself 
and imprisoned. In other cases, you sympathized or showed compassion with those who were thrown in prison. You, you stood alongside those. So there's definitely a strong sense here of a possibility of guilt by association, even legal guilt, where you could see a small number of the group would be arrested and incarcerated and they would be bait. And the Christians who came and showed up and provided food for them because they didn't feed them in prison or brought blankets or other kind of physical care would be arrested as collaborators. So it took a lot of courage to sympathize with those in prison. Yeah, I think maybe someone in our modern legal system wouldn't quite understand that connection of Mm. guilty by association if you go and visit and show compassion to someone in prison. Yeah. Because, yeah, basically you're saying, I'm a Christian too, and you you could be arrested on the spot. Yeah, and sometimes it was just the way the Romans did business. I don't know if you see the... um, uh, the the movie the old movie Ben Hur and uh, where where uh, Judah Ben Hur and his mother and sister are arrested and a friend comes and intercedes for them and the friend gets arrested so I mean this is the kind of thing they it's just how it was they had that kind of power so either way whether it was Jewish prosecutors or Gentile prosecutors it took a lot of courage to uh, sympathize with those in prison and how it says later remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners there there's a price tag to that yeah. But, you know, he says more than that here. And it's very powerful here where he says, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. And that's that's an incredible statement that he makes there. Yeah, what would cause someone to be able to accept some kind of persecution like that with joy? Yeah, well, we see it in the book of Acts where the uh, the apostles, the early disciples, were were filled with joy after they'd been beaten in Acts chapter 5, I think it is, because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And they knew, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven if you're persecuted for Christ's sake. So I think the same mentality is going on here. You joyfully embraced even, accepted the confiscation of your property. Um, that would be like sheer insanity, uh, except that the author gives us the reason why, because you knew that you had a better possession and a lasting one. And I think it, it ultimately it's heaven, but beyond that, there's the, the rewards that come to special individuals in heaven who are persecuted, even martyred for the faith. So these individuals were set apart by God to suffer for Christ, and they, they were filled with joy over that. That's a supernatural perspective. Yeah, I think you've taught this, and I think this is also one of the things Paul's teaching in Philippians 2, that greater suffering leads to greater glory, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't yeah, that true? Absolutely. Yeah, the more that we suffer in this world for Christ. For Christ, greater, yeah, for Christ. Yeah, obviously, yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. suffering in general. Yeah, yeah, but even so, I think that people can go through some amoral suffering like cancer, but if they do it in a way that's very clearly courageous and clearly spirit-filled and do it for the sake of unbelieving people that are watching, I think you get the same reward as a martyr. Um, you know, you're dying, it's a different kind of situation. But yeah, yeah, I think the general principle is the more you suffer for Christ on earth, the greater your reward in the next world. Uh, and so these individuals joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because they said, yeah, it's just an earthly house. I've got a mansion in glory and nobody can take that from me. Yeah, Peter calls it um, the inheritance imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Yeah, protected in heaven, perfect, and, and it gets enhanced. Uh, by uh, subsequent courageous acts. So the more we do while we have our time here in this in this life for Christ, the bolder we are, the better it is for us in heaven. Yeah. Now in verse 35, he gives them an exhortation. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So um, h- 
how are they in danger of throwing away their confidence? Well, that's the great danger here. And this, I think at this point, we're looking at the same steps to apostasy that this book has been dealing with, drifting away, turning away, falling away. So here it seems to be more of an intentional act to throw away your confidence as something that you don't need anymore, like a, like a, a wrapper on, on something that you've already eaten, you know, just like a piece of, piece of garbage or litter you throw on the ground. It's just worthless to you. And so you throw that away. And it seems to be an intentional action. It reminds me of the church at Ephesus and uh, Jesus warns that they had forsaken their first love. It was a conscious decision. So the author is exhorting them, don't throw away the most precious thing you have in this life. Now the word he uses for confidence here could be translated boldness. So there's that sense of, you see the, the boldness of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 where it says they saw that they had been disciples of Jesus. There's that, it, it literally means a, bold, a plainness of speech. There's a sense of absolute confidence in saying whatever God lays on your heart. But then it extends to the whole demeanor. Uh, you're, you're suffering very confidently. Um, because you've got such a strong faith. You're living almost an otherworldly perspective and saying whatever happens to me in this world is immaterial com compared to the glory that's coming. And so he says, look, you don't throw that away. Well, how would you throw that away? Well, in this case, in this setting, you throw it away by caving in, by going back to Old Covenant Judaism, by turning your back on Jesus. You, you, you're no longer persecuted. You know, so don't throw away your faith. Don't throw away your boldness. But you can also throw it away just by sin, by becoming increasingly worldly. Uh, you could see a boiling the frog situation where it's not a, a single decisive act, but little by little by little, you become more and more worldly and you capitulate more and more to the world. And that's a danger for many in America here today, I think. Yeah. Why do you think he says, though, confidence instead of maybe don't throw away your savior or don't throw away your faith? Well, it seems that the author is going after a hard attitude here. We're going to get in the next chapter to a definition of faith being assurance of things hoped for and conviction. Assurance and conviction are things inside the heart. It's a sense or a feeling, like hope is a feeling in the heart. It's nothing more than that. Hope's not a physical thing. It's not something you can go buy somewhere or you can put on a shelf. Hope is a feeling. It's a sense in the heart that the future is bright based on the promises of God. Faith is the same way. It's not a material thing. So confidence is related to that. It's a state of soul, similar to, as we've been talking about recently, contentment. It's a state of soul. It's a demeanor or an attitude of the soul. So he says, don't throw that away. That's what confidence means here. It's like there's a, a kind of a supernatural boldness like Peter and John had before the Sanhedrin there or, or Stephen had. Just They're almost like in another world. They, they've descended from another world filled with heavenly joy and glory, and they'll just tell you how it is. And they're not afraid. Imagine an angel, and an angel's given a message to come and proclaim. Um, like think about the angel that came to warn the tyrant Nebuchadnezzar about his arrogance and his pride. Do you think the angel was in any way afraid to bring that message to Nebuchadnezzar? Not at all. He's just otherworldly boldness. So I think that's what the author has in mind here. Don't throw away that kind of confidence you have because you're a faith in Christ. Hmm. And he says this confidence has a great reward. So what is the connection then between them not throwing this away and the reward they're receiving? Well, first and foremost, it's eternal life in heaven. Um, that's what we're talking about here. Um, and we're, we're going to a very stern warning at the end of this chapter. He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. A very strong word. But of those who believe ultimately for the salvation of their souls. That's really talking about heaven. We're talking about the city that is to come that we'll talk about in the next chapter. The heavenly city. 
the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, new earth. That's what we're talking about here. So that's the great reward first and foremost. The, the great reward is heaven when you die, being welcomed into, into eternal life with Christ. So don't throw your confidence. It will have a rich reward. But I think there's also an implication that there are rewards, plural, in life or, or in the next world for what we do in this life, as we just mentioned. So the more confident you are in a specific time, a specific setting, and even if you're released, they set you free, etc., that was still a reward you'll get in heaven, uh, you know, a gem in the crown or however you want to symbolize it or you could say it that way. But God does reward specific acts of mercy to the poor and needy or specific acts of boldness and courage for his namesake. Yeah. And in verse 36, he says that they have need of endurance. He says, for you have need of endurance. So just that image that you've put before us of this reward, it you know, reminds us of Paul, you know, talking about running the race to receive the, the, the wreath or the crown. Yeah. So in what ways is the Christian life a race for which we need endurance? Yeah, we're going to get to that beautifully in chapter 12 after the great faith chapter that we have to run with endurance the race marked out in front of us. This is not a, a sprint. This is not a 100-meter dash here. This is a marathon. It's a whole life race. And so you're going to need endurance because, honestly, apparently the author here doesn't think the fact that their earlier days showed such boldness and such faith will do them any good if they stop doing that. If at some point they apostatize, the earlier stuff doesn't matter. So you have to stand firm to the end. Jesus said, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so if you bail out before that, you will not be saved. So I believe as somebody uh, who trusts in the absolute sovereignty of God, and uh, some people call it Calvinism or Reformed theology, that you can never lose your salvation. But this is the point of the whole book, I think. You need this faith to be fed by the Word of God and by and ministered to by the Spirit of God. You need Jesus at the right hand of God interceding for you, or you will most certainly give up and, and fail. And we also need this warning that you have need of endurance. I like the way it says here also in the Greek, and it comes across in the translation you're reading, you have need of perseverance. It's, it's like something you'll need. Um, it's like imagine... Uh, the uh, like the rangers, I think, in uh, at D Day in Normandy, some of them had to scale uh, a wall, a cliff, to get up to take their part of the beach, and so they had grappling hooks and and very sturdy cords. And you can imagine climbing hand over hand up to fight a battle. But that's what these guys were trained to do, and they did it. Well, imagine then the quartermaster saying, you, you'll have need of this grappling hook and this line for where we, we're letting you off at the beach. Yeah, you better believe it will have need of it. Other than that, we don't get up. So the author is saying, you'll need this equipment. You will need endurance. You'll need perseverance if you're going to be saved. Yeah, because the Christian life is hard all the way to the end. Absolutely, right? to the end. You know, we have a race to run right to the end. And, and even for those that are elderly, you know, they're, they're enduring severe uh, physical trials. They may not be being persecuted, but it need, it's important for them to finish their race with endurance, important for them to die well when the time comes. And that's something that for me as I get older, uh, I'm preparing for. I know that the trials that I go through as a younger man will prepare me to leave this world by faith as well. But the author says here, you have need of endurance. And that's something that all of us needs in our Christian lives. Yeah, what does it mean to have done the will of God? Because he says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Well, 
centrally here uh, to do the will of God is to believe in the one who he has sent, whom he has sent. Jesus said that John six twenty nine. Yeah, yeah. What, what must we do to work the works of God? And that is to believe in Jesus. Um, but having done that then to live the Christian life, to, to do the internal journey of holiness and to do the works of external journey of gospel advance, to do your spiritual gift ministry, to do good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do, whatever the will of God is for you. An obedient servant just says, here I am, Lord, what can I do to serve you? You are a living sacrifice, presenting your body as a living sacrifice continually. So that's the, the lesser doing the will of God. But the central act is to keep on believing, not just believing at the beginning, but all the way through in the one that, he has sent, namely Jesus. So after you've done the will of God, such as believing in Jesus and then obeying him in all of the lesser works, then you will receive what he has promised. Yeah. So right after he says that, he then quotes scripture for a warning. And it seems to me like kind of an amalgamation of different Old Testament passages that he puts together. One seems to be from Haggai, uh, one from Habakkuk, and then I'm not sure where the other one's from, but uh, he says, Yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So what is the threat here? The threat is don't shrink back. I mean, he's going to culminate the whole chapter in that. So don't turn away from the living God. Don't turn away from Christ. So to shrink back, the, the image here is um, of, of cowering, really, through fear, through a, a faithless fear to shrink back from the challenge of persecution in this case, the challenge of the harshness that this world often gives to Christians. So to see all that, to see, well, I think about the 10 spies, you know, they came back with the report that the that the Anakites, that these giants are in the land and they, they had cities with walls up to the sky and there's no way uh, that they could defeat them. They We look like grasshoppers to them and we look that way to ourselves and that's shrinking back. That's the language of unbelief. And look what happened to them. They died in the desert. They didn't enter the promised land. I, I think it's actually... You, I, th I think it's not... wouldn't be a shock to say that the author has them in mind right here. Yeah, yeah because he says... We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. And God basically said, I'm going to destroy every single one of them. So it's like the we've, not, we've not entered the promised land here yet. We need to have faith right, right straight through. And the promised land, really, the consummation, I mean, the physical promised land is just a type in a shadow like the rest of these types and shadows. The real promised land is heaven. It's eternal life. Uh, in heaven. So um, the, the threat here is shrinking back through unbelief. And so th there's some complex images here in these Old Testament quotations you mentioned. He who is coming in just a very little while, just a short time. So keep that in mind. Our lives here on earth are a mist and a vapor. Even if they're bitter and miserable, they're still brief. So in just a very, very little while, if you can just hang on, just like the church at Smyrna says the devil is going to test you for 10 days. So hang in there for 10 days. Now, we don't know if that's a literal 10 days, but it's a fixed, finite, and short amount of time. So in a very little while, he who is coming will come. Well, that's Christ. So, you know, it's like, well, it's been a long time on the second coming. I don't know what you think about that. I was just laughing because the... Uh... The, the quote is from Habakkuk, where he's talking about the Babylonians coming, but the yeah. author of Hebrews is saying in the same way, in a little while, Christ is coming. It's an interesting quotation to it use. Is. He, well, yeah, and the author just does that with this text, but I think the idea here is one of the second coming of Christ. Yes. Um, yeah. And so as when he comes, 
um, he will not be pleased with any that were not did not uh, trust in him. Jesus said very plainly in Mark chapter eight, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his Father's glory with his angels. So there it is, the second coming. He's going to come. So in a very little while he is coming. He will come and he will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. Now this is one of the most important statements in the entire Bible. So I know when you, th- when you hear that, Joel, what does that, what does that do to you? My righteous one will live by faith. Well, it just takes me back through through all the heroes of faith to Abraham and, and you know, his faith was reckoned as righteousness to, yeah. you know, Habakkuk who is saved, you know, the righteous live by faith. And then, of course, to Paul in Romans 4, mm. you know, faith, uh, righteousness, justification by faith. And it's just, mm. it's powerful. It's huge. It's not because of works. And so, yeah, I just, I get moved every time I, I think about it. Yeah, I saw that on your face. And uh, we know that this is uh, quoted also in Romans one seventeen, one of the most significant places in the entire Bible. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jews, then for the Gentile. Then verse 17, um, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is from faith for faith, just as it is written, quotes the same verse, the righteous will live by faith. This was Martin Luther's converting verse, Romans 1.17, and now the author quotes it here. So he's, he's really setting before them the essence of the way by which sinners are made right with the holy God. You are justified by faith, but what kind of faith? And that's what the whole next chapter is about. And right here, we'd have to say, it's the kind of faith that enables you to stand firm in the midst of persecution and not shrink back. That's the faith that will justify. That is the faith that pleases God. And if that's the faith you have, then you'll have eternal life. You have forgiveness of sins. But if your faith is a a counterfeit faith, you know, the faith that James talks about, James 2, that kind of faith can't save you. So we're really at the ru- where the rubber meets the road here, we're at the crossroads. Do you have a genuine saving faith? And if so, you will be willing to look your hate-filled persecutors in the eye and not be afraid in any way, as Philippians says, not being frightened in any way by them because you are trusting in Christ. So that's what he's saying here. My righteous one will live by faith. Now, the word live is important. It does mean live eternally or have eternal life. But I think it also means that you will survive all of your trials. Even if you die, you'll live, as Jesus said. So in the end, you will will live forever uh, because on the basis of your faith. And then finally, he says, if, however, he shrinks back, I will have no pleasure in him. That's not just an idle threat. That means that you will not be uh, seen to be a a child of God. He will not love you uh, in that adoptive love. He will actually despise you and destroy you if you shrink back. As I think about these verses, I'm taken to some of the early persecutions in church history where, uh, you know, they either had to burn the incense or, you know, Mm -hmm. confess Caesar's Lord. And and so many Christians just in the face of that stood fast. Mm -hmm. But then there were others who shrunk back. Mm -hmm. And um, my, my favorite one, though, is when they, they shrunk back and then they saw their brothers and sisters in Christ standing firm. Then some of them went back and said, no, 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 we are Christians. Kill us, too. And, uh, and they died with the martyrs. And that's uh, just a, a powerful uh, illustration of not shrinking back, facing death, but then the righteous will live by faith. That's a great story. It's powerful. Yeah, so then he finally exhorts them in, in verse 39. He says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, 
but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Very similar to chapter 6 where he says, we have better things for you. We think better things about you. Yeah, only here he doesn't say you. I mean, and, and that's the thing. It's like, what about you now? Mm. You know, and so I think he's, he's writing to the same people, but he's like, this is, this is really the point of the whole letter now. We, we Christians are not of those that shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe to the salvation of our souls. So what about you? It's almost like the, the gauntlet is being thrown down there. So what about you? Are you with us or not? Because if you're not with us, you're against us. If you're not part of the group of those that do not shrink back to be destroyed, but of those that believe to the salvation of our souls, then you can be part of us. So it really comes down to what you're going to choose to do. And it's very strong here. I, I, I think we have to read this and, and really almost have a sense of trembling here. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. I mean, that's a very, very strong word. I can't help but think about hell, where Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body. And after that can do nothing more to you. But I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who, after the death of the body, has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. So that's what I think of when I think of this destruction here, this language of being destroyed. That means in hell. So we mean ultimately you have to be the kind of person who trusts in Jesus right to the end or you'll be condemned. There's a far greater danger here than any you're facing. Um, with your persecutors. Now, I think we need to also realize the author does not shrink back from using this kind of motivation. He uses very strong negative motivation in this epistle. So we have to turn our backs on those that say, oh, we should never try to scare people into heaven or we should never be hellfire and brimstone preachers or whatever. We should just preach the text. And when the text talks about destruction for those that shrink back, we should preach the same ourselves. How can we, 21st century believers living in the West, heed these warnings appropriate to our context. I mean, we live in an age that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity, whether you're talking about, you know, getting sued for not uh, serving clientele for a homosexual wedding, or you think of Randy Alcorn getting sued for protesting at an abortion clinic. And so the culture is becoming increasingly hostile to our faith, uh, especially the faith that if it's held rightly from the scriptures and not the wishy-washy faith that compromise on everything. How can we take this and use this to strengthen our confidence and our faith and stand firm in the midst of hostility? Well, I think we have to acknowledge that we're not facing the kind of assaults and persecutions, confiscation of our property here uh, generally that these folks are. You are citing some examples, um, but there's going to come a day where it's just going to be enough to be a Christian, that's all. And you could see the, the loss of life, liberty, or property without due process of law or even with due process of law just because Christianity itself will be illegal as it was uh, under the Roman Empire, some of the emperors, and as it is in certain parts of the world now. So um, that's the kind of confidence uh, that we might have to have in the future. But honestly, that's not the kind of thing we face now. We have to look at a different kind of shrinking back to the destruction of our souls. And that's more of a worldliness. See, either, either, either the world will, will offer you the, the kingdoms of the world in its splendor like he did with Jesus, where it offers you pleasures and material prosperity and all that. But if you refuse, then the world will smash you around. It's usually one or the other. And if you're not being smashed around by the world, then you're being wooed and enticed and, and um, allured by the world. And so for us, I think we need to be honest and say it's more of the world's more of an alluring, enticing kind of frame toward Christians. And many are being deceived by it. But it's the same kind of destruction that we would undergo as capitulating in a time of persecution. Hmm. Well, that was episode 28 in the book of Hebrews. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time. And we enter Hebrews chapter 11 
for the great hall of faith. The author says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.